We are joined by our resident scientist, our science expert, Dan Riskin, who's uh, back from, I don't know what you were doing the time off if you were traveling, but it's nice to have you back. It's great to be back. Yeah, we did the family road trip down to Florida, which we had missed. We, we'd like to do that every year when we can, but we'd missed the last two years because of a certain unnameable pandemic. Oh. So uh, it was nice to get back down there and uh, and just have some time in the sun for sure. It's so funny. I remember the road trips from when I was a kid that we would do with our parents and you'd sit in the back seat or on the bench seat in the front between mom and dad and uh, look at the wires overhead. And that yeah. was and it would just go on forever. Yeah, you know what? I had a really uh, profound conversation with my 11-year-old because he'd sort of lost it on the second day on the way down. He said, I've got a phone that I could use to play video games. I'm so bored. Why won't you let me play video games? And I said, well, to be honest, I want you to be bored because I think it's good for your development. So then I bored him with my big explanation of all the studies I've seen about why, you know, not being bored can actually be a detriment and, and you actually build all kinds of cognitive skills by learning how to deal with being bored. And he kind of he kind of took that in and he stopped asking for the rest of the drive. So no devices in the car was the rule. And uh, we listened to lots of podcasts and stories and stuff like that and had some conversations. But I mean, some people got sick of each other and had fights. It was a long road trip, but it was a, it was a cool conversation to have. All right. I enjoy your family dynamics. <laughs> I don't um, know if my family does, but it's fun to talk about afterwards. Let's talk about some of the science stories of the week, including something I came across the other day about uh, why Roman buildings uh, were actually better built, I guess we could say. Yeah, I mean, who knew concrete could be this interesting? But this is actually really cool. So it's this question about why Roman uh, materials have lasted so long. I mean, there's uh, a, a site called the Pantheon in Rome. Uh, it's this huge dome. Uh, it's the, still the world. It's 2000 years old. It's still the world's largest unreinforced concrete dome. And it stands and it hasn't collapsed despite earthquakes and all the other stuff. And so some scientists were trying to figure out what maybe there's something about the concrete that makes it really last longer. And, and lo and behold, they found that there is something special special to it. If you look at Roman concrete, ancient Roman concrete, and uh, this is the kind of nerdy thing that you can take with you if you ever have a trip over there, just look really closely, you'll see these white chunks in there. And it looks like it wasn't mixed properly. Um, but of course, they were doing everything very deliberately back in the day. And it turns out these are what are called lime clasts. And this is, uh, it looks different from modern concrete. But what will happen is that when uh, there's a crack, if it rains subsequently, it'll dissolve those white chunks and they'll fill the crack and then they'll recrystallize. And so it's like a healing cement. And that is a, a property that modern cements don't have, at least not to the same degree. And so it's believed that that's sort of the magical sauce that makes Roman concrete work so well. And, and concrete is a huge carbon cost. I mean, making concrete, fixing roads. So if we could find a way to make our concrete last longer, uh, that could have a huge effect on our carbon cycle. So um, this is not just about the past. This is potentially about the future too. So let's listen in because uh, our next topic is about silly walks and Monty Python. Good morning. <laughs> I'm sorry to have kept you waiting, but I'm afraid my, uh, my walk has become rather silly recently and so it takes me rather long. <laughs> now then, uh, what was it again? Well, sir, I, I have a, a silly walk and I'd like to obtain a government grant to help me develop it. <laughs> I see. Uh, may I see your silly walk? Yes, certainly, yes. Okay. I, I could listen to Monty Python all day, actually, but we have to... Uh, let's get to the study that shows silly walks might be a good thing for your heart. 
Yeah, I mean, well, so this comes from a, a special issue of a, a scientific journal. They do a Christmas issue where they invite people to write kind of funny papers, but you can't just make stuff up. You have to actually do the study. And so here they did the study where they had, uh, I believe it was 13 people walk normally and have their oxygen consumption measured, which is a way you put on a mask and you measure how much oxygen you burn. And that's a measure of how much energy you're using. Uh, that's the standardized way to do it. And so they did it walking normally and then they did the silly walks. And so you've got John Cleese's original silly walk, which is the one he uses at the beginning of that skit coming into the office, which is hilarious and looks very weird. When people do that walk, they use two and a half times the energy that normal walking does for the same person. And so you could use it as an exercise technique. Like if you really wanted to burn extra calories, you could do the silly walk on your way to work like Michael Palin and people would think you were silly, but you would be winning because you'd be burning more energy. However, the uh, the walk that the other guy does, uh, Michael Palin, uh, it, it's not very silly, is it? Is the response that John Cleese gives when he does his walk because <laughs> as he puts it the right leg isn't silly at all and the left leg merely does a forward aerial half turn every alternate step right and uh when you do that walk you don't burn any extra energy so in fact uh, his intuition my, john cleese's intuition is correct it's not very silly because it doesn't burn any any extra energy so uh the whole thing is silly but it's it's cool and it gives a little bit of context to a classic skit which by the way goes very well for my kids they love yeah. that skit but they can't watch it in the car Okay. Well, but, but I'm actually intrigued that uh, a new generation uh, is, is still riffing on, on Monty Python, because I think sometimes stuff goes out of style. I always remember growing yeah. up, I was convinced that something was only funny if it had a British accent, because my principal uh, you know, uh, exposure to comedy was Monty Python. Yeah, and you're not wrong. I mean, it is funnier because of their accents, because you just associate that with very serious things. But I got to say, some of the Monty Python stuff does not do well. Like, watch it first and then show it to the kids, because some of it you're like, ooh, that's a that's a little bit uh, that's a little bit uh, fast. Let's I'm just uh, slow that down. Very curious about this next headline: Brain games could predict how bad your next cold will be. Okay, first of all, I don't do games. I can't stand Wordle, so I guess I can't be a test subject for this. I guess not. Uh, and boy, I'll bet that's really going to really make a big impact on your life quality. I don't think it will. So uh, University of Michigan, uh, basically they had people, this is a weird study and I, I'm kind of surprised that it happened, but uh, they had 18 participants uh, over uh, 10 days and uh, what they did is they took people and for the first few days they did uh, these mind games where they tried to solve puzzles and, and riddles and things like that. And then they were infected with uh, a human rhinovirus, basically just a cold. And then for the next several days, they were they had their nose flushed to measure how much virus they were shedding, and they listed their symptoms, which that's a pretty intense study. Mm -hmm. But at first, they didn't find any signal whatsoever. But then when they looked closely, the variability in your performance on the cognitive test, the more variable you were, the worse your cold was going to be. Now, they point out people aren't going to take cognitive tests three times a day to find out how their cold is going to be next time they get one. But it does point to a link, which is interesting. Okay. What do we think that link is, though? That That is unanswered. So really, it's what makes it interesting is it's not really a way to sort of predict. It, it's not something you're going to use to try to predict how a cold is going to be for somebody, but it really speaks to you know how your body is doing when you get infected. And so your cognitive scores and their variability is somehow a metric of where your immune system is at. And so it, it's all related to each other and trying to understand that mind over body and how you stay healthy mentally and all that stuff. Um, that's a, a little window into that world. Thanks a lot. Good to have you back, sir. Happy New Year. Yeah. Happy New Year.